Sebastian Folks once wrote one of the most beloved novels of the past half century, the 13th most beloved, actually, in a UK poll of readers. It was called Birdsong, about a British soldier on the front lines during the First World War and his granddaughter, 50 years later, trying to understand what he went through. And passages of Birdsong were set underground with the tunnelling engineers trying to plant mines under the German trenches and listen to the enemy only a few metres above. And many men from our west coast, especially, I think, were sent across to the battlefields we fought in and given similar perilous assignments. Birdsong was one of a trilogy of Sebastian Folk's historical novels set in France. Another one was based in part on the heroism of New Zealand's Nazi Wake, the White Mouse, who worked with the resistance to Nazi rule during World War II. There have been many novels since on various themes, and the new one is set in the near future. It's called The Seventh Son, and it's about a young woman, Talissa Adam, who answers an ad and becomes a surrogate mother for money, carrying a child for a new study into IVF. And the baby boy, Seth, who's born, has mostly Neanderthal DNA. Unbeknownst to her, a fertility clinic is experimenting with the human future. Sebastian, folks, lovely to talk to you. Yeah, it's very good to talk to you the other side of the world too. And this is the last interview you're giving for this book. Yes, I've been uh, hard at it um, since the last week in August. I mean, not every day, not 24 hours, but um, there's been a lot and you're expected to do a lot these days, but it's been pretty good fun on the whole. Well, thank you for including us. It's good. Uh, Richard Dawkins, am I right, gave you half an idea for this book, new book? Yes. Uh, people are very surprised that um, I actually got uh, something from Twitter. Most people think of Twitter as just this awful place where fascists and lunatics scream abuse at each other. But if you just dip a little toe in now and again, you occasionally find something interesting or you get a link to an interesting article or a book. And uh, Richard Dawkins tweeted something one afternoon about just imagine what might happen if um, an extinct species um, was able, they were able to recreate its DNA and it was then implanted into the egg of a living human. Um, that's all he said. Um, and I just thought, well, that sounds very um, way out and far too science fiction-y and for me. And I wasn't really sure how how serious he was anyway. Um, but I did think about it a lot and I thought, well, maybe if it wasn't a a long extinct species, but a, a recent species that we know we did breed with anyway, like the Neanderthals. And suppose it wasn't a, a clone, is, which is what he was suggesting, but a, a hybrid. And after all, all our ancestors at some point were hybrids of Homo sapiens and Neanderthal. Then, you know, hmm, that could be that could be interesting. That could be sort of less way out and a bit more to do with human beings and parents and children and the way we are today. Yes, and everything in the book is credible, you say, doable. Uh, recreating mm. Nanderthal DNA has been done. Uh, a Seth, who is the uh, mostly Neanderthal human in your book, could in theory emerge among us. And there would be a great to-do, as there is in your book. Why do you think, though, Sebastian, we'd be afraid of it, though? Well... I mean, Seth, the, the kid who is the centre of the book, who was born as a result of a, um, a sort of sleight of hand, really, in an IVF clinic, um, appears to be 
pretty much like you and me. He's a perfectly healthy child. He has nice parents. He goes to the local school. He's not particularly brilliant academically, but he warms up, you know, when he goes along. He's a bit of a loner. He ends up at quite a good university where he studies engineering, though he's not a very diligent student. And in many ways, he's, uh, you know, he lives in a very, very multicultural part of London where all the kids look different from one another. There's no kind of normal standard. But uh, when things begin to leak out, which suggests that he is actually genetically quite different from the rest of uh, the people he lives with, the the other children at school and university and so on, uh, there is the reaction initially from the press, uh, the sort of, you know, tabloid newspapers. I don't know how bad they are in New Zealand, but um, pretty bad here. And also, of course, you know, new media, the social media has, has turned the whole world into a sort of pack of braying hounds, really. Um, but I think deep down, uh, all human history shows, alas, I mean, very dismayingly, that we have a deep distrust of, of the other, of people who are not exactly like us. And through history going back, you know, many, many centuries, uh, humans have been far more likely to be friends with their dogs or their cows or their horses than with any strangers or incomers. How come we survive? I mean, we love killing one another, don't we, at the drop of a hat using all sorts of Mm. pretexts. And yet you and I have probably never thought of killing other people, and most of the people we know haven't, and all the people who read your books, especially after Birdsong. Uh, what 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 bad luck in a way that the planet got us? Yes, I know. I often think that. I mean, the reason we survived is because we are so fantastically good at breeding. I mean, uh, the the human population of the world at the moment, there were several uh, expeditions out of Africa into Eurasia um, and thence across east, south, west, and then down to Australasia, up across the Bering Strait into the Americas and so on. But the one that was finally successful, they think probably numbered in the low thousands, some people think as as few as 900 or 1,200 people. And we are now, whatever we are, 8 billion. Mm. So we're terribly good at breeding. Um, And we are very ruthless with other creatures, with competitors. So we are also very, very given to killing one another. In uh, my continent, Europe, in the 20th century, we killed maybe a hundred million of ourselves yeah. um, in, in two world wars. Although we're brilliant at killing, we're even better at breeding. Yeah. Um, but I guess, you know, once upon a time, there were lots of different human types, human species who walked the earth. I mean, Homo sapiens walked, lived at the same time as Neanderthals, as Dennis Owens and the uh, recently discovered human species in Indonesia. There were probably others. We may discover yet others. They were not incredibly numerous, these other species, it's fair to say. But, I mean, I've often been intrigued by the idea that we are, you know, we are the last remaining human uh, example of the human genus. And, um, you know, it's rather as if the pug was the last remaining dog. (laughs) And, you know, there's nothing wrong with a pug, but it's not really terribly representative (laughs) of dogs as a whole. Uh, You know, we are a freak of nature. I mean, we really are. And uh, as you just said, you know, poor old world to have been landed with us. Wouldn't it have been better for the world if it had been landed with 
you know, half a dozen uh, human types all living together, or if there had to be just one, did it have to be so extreme and weird and unstable as we are? The thinking neurotic pug. When, um, <laughs> when Neanderthals met us, what did they see? How different, Sebastian, were we from them and from us now? Well, it's a very good question to which the, no one knows the answer. There were not that many Neanderthals in existence, but we sufficiently interbred that everyone alive today, well, almost everyone except some people in some parts of Africa, will carry some Neanderthal in their genome. I mean, I have, I think, something like 3.5%. Um, so obviously, what did they make of each other? They liked each other well enough to mate. They were similar enough to mate. Um we know that Neanderthals had what it takes to have speech, language. We can say for sure that they were a very hardy people. Um, they lived through um, a period of violent climate um, changes. Yeah. They finally went extinct, we think, about 40,000 BC, but they'd, they'd had a run of 300,000 years uh, across Eurasia from the very west of Spain to the far east of Siberia, um, of what is now Russia and up near the polar regions and down into the warm regions of the Mediterranean. So we know that they were resourceful. We know that they were very, very tough, um, but they never bred in huge numbers. From what we do know, um, they seem to have been uh, hardy and, um, you know, reasonably peaceable and, 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 and creatures who's, who, adapt, who are very well adapted to the world in, in a way that Sapiens is increasingly maladapted i think yeah that's a good point so not bad people to meet but they didn't survive us and because we bred far better but also there was that i get this from your book too that that the the relentless drive which we don't think other humans had or we don't know if they had that was our charisma if you like a hundred thousand years ago i think so and so in my book i imagine an early meeting between a small band of neanderthals and a, a small band of of sapiens and one of the neanderthal women thinks there's absolutely no point in denying these people what they want because they're going to take it anyway um and when i was uh, for the last um scene of the book i wanted it to take place somewhere very very remote uh like antarctica i'd heard people describing standing in antarctica and listening to the silence and they said it was like listening to the beginning of time mm. And I wanted to go somewhere where that was the case, but uh, Antarctica was difficult to get to, very long way away, sounded quite cold. So I went to the wilds of Scotland instead, and um, I was going to go to an uninhabited island there, and unfortunately I couldn't get across because um, the boatman said, um, I'm, I'm happy to take you there, but if I put you down, I may never pick you up again. The, <laughs> the swell's so bad. And I thought, well, I'm really keen to research this. <laughs> I don't want to die in the attempt. But while I was there, I, you know, everywhere you go, I mean, even on this now uninhabited island, there is a small stone building where once someone went, some crazy priest went. Mm. And, you, you know, things don't get much more uninhabitable than the Outer Hebrides. I spend a lot of time walking around and driving wind and rain. But if there's someone somewhere a bit more uninhabitable, humans will go there. They they just can't stop. And, you know, okay, 
this planet, which we've sort of in the process of, I hope not destroying completely, but we're not doing much good to it. But we're not satisfied with that. We want to go to other planets. And if there's somewhere beyond the moon that's even harder to get to, well, we'll go there. Sure, why not? I mean, and I think that's this insane drive that is one of the defining. Of course, you know, it has very good side effects. You know, mm. our, our drive also has led us to discover amazing things scientifically. I mean, you know, Isaac Newton looked up at the heavens and by the brilliance of his deductive imagination, realized that all objects attract all other objects in inverse proportion to the square of the difference between them. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's drive for you. <laughs> oh, I'm sure you and I have had thoughts just as good in the outdoors. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Not recently. <laughs> Sebastian Folks is with us and the new book from him, The Seventh Sun. You know, you've previously, oh, we can't give away why Seth ends up in the Outer Hebrides, but uh, people will have to read the book. You've previously written about this, or thought about at least, and written about this huge evolutionary leap we made, which of course has encouraged ideas about intelligent design. This leap that we made too quickly that's made us a mad species as well as a, a brilliant one. And paraphrasing you... Uh, Accurately, I hope. You know, we would be better if it had happened more slowly. There's no reason why Beethoven's song of joy, the uh, you know, the ode to joy, should be counterpointed with the mass slaughter we inflict on our own species, which you've excelled at uh, depicting. I think murder as precaution uh, is a fantastic phrase in your new book. You know, you've thought about this right through your writing career just about, haven't you? I have, yes. And I think a lot of my early books, therefore, including Birdsong, Charlotte Grey, The Girl at the Leon Door, were sort of me trying to figure out how we got to this point. We were, although a wonderful species, men and women have done great, great things, uh, also mentally unstable, uh, given to, you know, one in a hundred of us hears voices uh, from people who aren't present. Um, and also terribly, terribly violent. I mean, I just can't even bear to see what's happening in Gaza at the moment. Yeah. Um, and so I think the next sort of run of books I, I've written have, broadly speaking, had this sort of theme of not who are we, but what are we? And, you know, why are we like this? You know, I hear myself talking like this. It all sounds very pompous and as if you sat down to say, I'm going to write six books now about this and six books about that. <laughs> it's only in retrospect you can see this um uh this shape if you like it's just like looking back when you when you ski down a mountain you look up the mountain you think oh you, then you can see it uh you can see the shape of where you've been and so on um but what, one of the things one of the interesting things i did come across in researching this was been consciousness human consciousness is an extraordinary uh enigma why we have it and why we are the only creature in the world that wakes up every morning knowing we're going to die mm. that is a hell of a burden to carry really uh, as well as and the consciousness is such an astonishing faculty which we can switch on and switch off you can go for a long time without being self-aware but it, it's a fascinating topic in itself um but i came across this idea quite an old idea actually from the sort of probably the 1980s 1990s that you can't really explain consciousness in evolutionary terms because it hasn't really given us great advantages uh, in standard evolutionary terms. But maybe it's what, uh, maybe it's it's a freak that's it's a it's close in the genome. The the genes which give us the ability to have consciousness are not themselves being positively selected, 
but they lie in the genome very close to something that is being positively selected. And therefore, they are hitchhiking a ride. So this consciousness, the thing that makes us so amazing and so brilliant and so worrying and so destructive, as it is not really the thing that defines us in evolutionary terms. It's it's a hitchhiker, and it's in the book I say it's a bit like the logo on a on a trainer or a shoe, and people pay you know extra hundreds of dollars to get this logo on their shoe. But it's really nothing to do with the shoe. And the shoe is all about the soul and, uh, you know, whether it's comfortable, whether it's waterproof and if you can run well and uh, walk well in it. Yeah, and that's a nice analogy. I know all these ideas are touched on in the book, whether we have more senses than five, uh, because Seth seems to. The idea of, you know, self as a delusion. You know, we could talk about all this stuff uh, for a long time. And also what makes us human is it self-awareness? But, you know, maybe in the future we'll meet with aliens with superior self-awareness. So where would that leave us? It's it's all discussed in this book. It's So you actually have gone down rabbit holes, probably, that you never intended to as a young man when you started thinking about all this. But it's led you to very interesting places. Yes, when I, I, I think when I started writing books, I I wanted to write what is known in the publishing world as literary fiction which means basically books in which not much happens except they're about the relations and feelings that people have to one another and how they develop through family or parenthood or love affairs or death or whatever. Um, but I, as I delved deeper and deeper, I did go down some rabbit holes. But I don't want your listeners to think that, you know, this book is all about science or all about terribly, you know, hard philosophical questions. I mean, it is there is there is that in it, but they they give the sort of the structure to it, and they're they're what holds up the building. But the building is about um, a family. It's about a, a very ordinary man and woman and their child Seth, and the surrogate mother who who carries Seth, and the relationship between those two is at the centre of the book. Yes, I didn't want to make it sound like it's a philosophical treatise. It's a um, Sebastian Folk's novel, and it's been called a thriller as well, which it qualifies as. Um, you've imbued Seth, your 50% plus Neanderthal, though, with a sixth sense, haven't you? He knows when people are approaching without seeing them. I don't want to give too much away. Are there senses that you think we have lost? I mean, I know smell would be one. I'm sure we used to sniff far more effectively in the old days. But, but you also think more intangibly. Our senses have kind of become more tangible, perhaps. I don't know. Um, uh, certainly, it seems to me that from my understanding of um, evolutionary biology, um, you need an organ to have evolved in order for a sense to be recognized. I mean, the eye took a very long time to evolve. I mean, millions of years. And it was all terribly, terribly chancy. In a sense, the... Um, the sense followed the organ. So if our bodies had developed in a different way, um, so we had a receptor for something else, then maybe sight wouldn't be so important to us. Maybe hearing wouldn't be so important to us. There, there must be other ways of, of perceiving reality because certainly reality is very hard to understand. Well, I find it very hard to understand. I, I only have to watch five minutes of a science program talking about space, time, and the Big Bang, and I'm completely lost. <laughs> um <laughs> 
So I thought if I was talking about a radically different human like Seth in the book, it was only fair to suggest he might have different ways of um, sensing, perceiving the world. Um, so I've, I've looked at them, but I'm not saying this is definitely how it would be. But what I'm trying to say is the different ways in which he sees it, for instance, he has no interest in art. He cannot see the point in people drawing pictures to present the world back to itself. But, I mean, ancient people, just as an aside, they did have art. The Denisovans, I'm not sh- never sure how to pronounce them, uh, uh, d- they especially, we think, had art. And uh, so it's interesting that you think he didn't see the point of it. Yeah, I mean, I'm just floating it around. I mean, we don't know who is responsible for the various very important cave art things, whether they were which, whether they were early sapiens or whether they were later, late um, examples of Neanderthal or Denisovan or so on. I, I'm not sort of terribly well up on it, but um, I, I do think that um, the the constant desire to reinterpret the world back to itself, which is what art is, whether um, visual art or music or, or writing or, or, or very much in theatre, actually, I do think that is a very sapiens thing um, could be quite wrong. We'll probably discover in five years' time a whole new um, human species who died out, you know, 100,000 years ago, and they had sort of massive libraries and music and uh, <laughs> pictures and paintings and so on. But I'd, I'd be surprised. I'd be surprised. The Seventh Son, the new novel from Sebastian Folks. Just to pursue the different kind of consciousness idea for a minute more... Uh, as you say, you know, you could talk about it forever. Are our mental illnesses like schizophrenia? I mean, no one knows. But could they be the difficult remnants of the ways brains worked once? I wonder if it's no coincidence that there is a, a beautiful, physically beautiful and attractive character in your book named Felix, who is mentally blighted. Yes. Um, well, there is a lot of speculation about this sort of mental illness categories are kind of basically falling apart um, in America and in, in Europe. I don't know about in Australasia, but um, they just, no one can agree on anything. And the, the, the way in which symptoms are clustered together and defined by the the manuals, the handbooks of psychiatry, I mean, you can be called schizophrenia, I think. There are nine nine symptoms if you have more than five of five of them you may be classified as such. So basically, people could have four different, completely different symptoms and share only one and yet be given this rather terrifying diagnosis. Um, and increasingly, I think, um, we see human mental frailty as a, as, as a spectrum, um, verging from incredibly well-adapted, easygoing, happy healthy people who are sort of, you know, at stage one through to people who spend their whole lives unable to manage anything and, you know, in, in long-term institutions who are, you know, in the 90s. Mm. And we all slot somewhere along that spectrum. Um, but it, there is a there is a, a very fascinating theory, whether it's true or not, I don't know, which is that the, the hearing of voices uh, of people who are not there uh, was actually an, quite an important part of, of human development at some stage, probably quite soon after we'd come out of Africa and we're trying to deal with the very large spaces and still quite small numbers of us and that the ability to hallucinate instruction from an absent leader um, was 
very important to us and was not a signal of being unwell, but a signal of being rather um, attuned. It was, a, it was a useful thing. It was a useful yeah. gift to have. And certainly once you think like that and then you read the Bible and the Old Testament is absolutely full of people taking instructions from voices and by which time they've become the holy men and they are much sought after and valued. And if you look at the description of John the Baptist, I mean, John the Baptist is would be, uh, I don't think any psychiatrist would hesitate for a second in, in saying, I think this man is schizophrenic for sure. Um, and you know Homer as well. Um, all the all the heroes in the Iliad and the Odyssey are taking instruction from voices. Though increasingly this dies out, it dies out in the New Testament. Jesus is one of the last people to receive instruction, and in the Odyssey, which is much later than the Iliad, again, much less overheard instruction from the gods. So that's a theory. Absolutely no way of proving whether or not this is true, but. Um, yeah, it is possible. Though. Yeah, and I don't want to get all religious on you. I mean, this is a fa- these are fascinating ideas to conjure with, you know. But uh, we are discarding perhaps the sense that sense of the intangible that used to in- accompany religion. We're substituting for it as as we necessarily will with all sort of manner of beliefs and so on. But I remember Tolkien thought that the, our need for that kind of myth demonstrates the truth of myth and so on. You know, more things in heaven and earth than that Seth doesn't dream of, that sort of thing. That's, those ideas are sort of present, aren't they, basically? They are. I mean, I I go through periods of, I mean, basically, the, the older I get, I'm sort of desperately trying to find some sort of spiritual dimension um, and hoping to to get there. But it's I find it hard, and I find it hard to get past the uh, the argument common to all religions, which is, um, you will never see, touch, hear, smell, or feel your God. I have great respect for pe- people uh, who, who, and I have great envy, actually, for people who have a really sustaining uh, religious and spiritual belief. Um, it must be wonderful, though I'm rather less so for people who kill in the name of it. Yeah, exactly. So the book is not short of suspense, and you can write in that genre or not the suspense genre, but the thriller genre, really well. So was there at any stage the temptation to make The Seventh Son more James Bondish? Uh, No, um, I didn't set out for it to be um, that sort of um, thrilling, but it just sort of, a sort of chase element came into the book, really. Just, it seemed to me this was organically developing. Also, The Seventh Son never thought it would be funny, but in fact, the sort of slightly future world, the near future world in which it is set, threw up quite a lot of quite comic moments, it seemed to me. So I thought, fine, well, you know, leave them in. As long as they've occurred naturally, leave it in. Yeah, so in your future world, near future world, not much will have changed. And I know this isn't central to your story, and I think you were having fun. But uh, as- aside from driverless cars and vegetarianism being the norm, it's it's pretty much business as usual. Uh, you've got faster jets. You say that even by the 2030s, we won't be using the word race uh, because race will be racist in itself. And we'll look back with disapproval at descriptions like people of colour, for example. Yeah, I mean, I think the ways in which um, people choose to describe themselves, uh, they mean they change every 
five years, really. So I don't think that's a I don't think that's a contentious prediction. I mean, I would like the idea of race to be to be dropped out because it's 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 unscientific. The arc of the story is over twenty five years, and so I think by the time by twenty fifty five, twenty fifty, you know, there will be some some differences, um, as well as the whole place just being hotter. Um, but I, I I was keen not to write a dystopia, and I was very keen not to have colonies on Mars and flying saucers. So <laughs> the differences are quite they are quite nuanced. I hope. <laughs> well, it'll put this book will put the fear of God into academics because AIs are doing all the teaching at universities in twenty five years time. You could be right about that. Well, they're doing the they're doing the introductory course, <laughs> um, and you know that this this to some extent has been happening for a while i mean i think one of the big american um uh universities i think it was harvard um gave up teaching some first year stuff because they said you can just get it off the internet it's much it's much clearer and more concise and you know that's a that's a version of the same thing i guess going back in time though so seth arrives and the book is about his life and we can't really say much more than that really without giving the game away to quite an extent but it's fascinating look i mean this is about the same time you know with humans and neanderthals uh, and all those other ra- sentient if you want to call them that races they were getting quite near us they were getting into australia i mean it's been said before but you you could call that middle earth couldn't you elves and hobbits and dwarves i think when we, we talked to professor tom Hyam at oxford who's written about um, he's a professor of archaeology. I think he had that Middle Earth analogy, that kind of fascinating moment in uh, the affairs of the planet where these races mm. existed simultaneously and it was pure chance mm. that we came through and, and, and drew the long straw. Yes, yes. Um, it's it's fascinating to think of, of a sort of a, a dinner party with a... Dennis Oban and a guy from Flores and a Neanderthal and a Homo sapiens. Of course, sapiens wouldn't have been quite as developed then uh, as they are now. And, you know, what the differences would be and how well they would have got on. Um, but, I mean, I mean, looking back at all this, what we do know, um, the speed with which sapiens got up through the belly of Eurasia, down uh, and out east and then down to uh, Australasia, I mean, unbelievably fast. I mean, we were talking earlier on about uh, their drive, but my goodness me! I mean, going over to through north and northeast Russia, as it now is, across the Bering Strait, which was then land, it wasn't sea, into America. I mean, that's a mighty long way, but it didn't pose the same uh, problems of, of navigation at sea as getting to Australia. I mean, let alone New Zealand. Yeah, I mean, we we were pretty. Maybe you know, the more I talk to you, maybe I'm thinking we did deserve to survive, actually. <laughs> Maybe we were. The, I mean, we, goodness me! You know what? Well, let's bit, let's end on an upbeat note. You know yeah. what we have achieved is pretty staggering, really, isn't it? It is pretty staggering. So unscrupulous men have created Seth. That turns into the great drama of your book. And yeah, it's nice to end on an upbeat note because you know your book has all that humour in it, but it's also a, a sad saga. It's a rueful, a rueful saga as well, isn't it? Just finally. Yes, uh, I think rueful is, is a good word to describe it. And uh, I have, you know, obviously 
terribly grave misgivings about the nature of the species to which I belong and our propensity to cruelty and violence is just so depressing. As I say, I can't bear to read the paper or watch the television. But, um, you know, there there is goodness in us and there is humour in us and there is a sense of, I mean, the, the only reason I'm a writer, really, is because through books, if I express the inner lives and thoughts and weaknesses and fears and hopes of imaginary characters, I know that readers around the world will find something of themselves in them and will respond to them. And I feel joined up and connected to people in, you know, in a really peaceful and positive way through the sort of communion of the printed page. And that may sound terribly pompous, but that's been my life. And it's been the best thing about my life. And that's a lovely, and it's a lovely lyrical ending. I'm glad we got there. Hey, thank you for your time on the last interview for The Seventh Son. We feel very <laughs> honoured. Well, I think it was probably one of the best too. So thank you. I feel very, very delighted to have been asked. Thank you.